Well, last week as we gathered for worship, we looked at a great, great story in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed, don't miss this, for 38 years. He comes along through a group of invalids to this particular invalid. That's what the Bible calls them, by the way, invalids. And he settles on this one man whose legs have been, hear the next word, dead for 38 years. Dead muscles, dead nerves, dead capacities, dead everything. And he speaks a word of resurrection. He comes to the man and he says, rise. And what happened? Because we saw it. Dead muscles came to life. Dead nerves came to life. Dead capacities and abilities came to life. And he rose. Life out of death. And the question that we came to the story with last week is, okay, but why did Jesus do that? I mean, what was the purpose of that particular miracle? And because I say that because what you want to say in response to that is, well, obviously he did it out of his great mercy. Or obviously he did it out of his great compassion. Or obviously he did it out of his great concern for the sick and for the hurting and for the dying and for the suffering. And I want to just pause and give Jesus all credit for mercy, compassion, and concern. He is himself the embodiment of each one of those things. There is no mercy. There is no compassion. There is no concern like the mercy, compassion, and concern of Christ. And there's no one more merciful, compassionate, or concerned than him, which is comforting particularly when we find ourselves in that category of the sick or the dying or the hurting or the suffering, but that's not why he did the miracle. Now, it's an act of mercy and compassion and concern, but why did he do it? See, as we dug into the text, what we realize is Jesus does this particular miracle with this particular man in this particular place on this particular day for a very particular reason, which was to gain an audience with the religious leaders of his day and with you and I today through this Gospel of John, who writes it all down for us so that we can study it and see it too. And he gains the audience with him and us that he might then preach a sermon. And it's a sermon involving resurrection. Jesus does these things, and John records these things for us. You know, so Jesus goes out, he feeds the 5,000 bread, and then he says, I am the bread of life. See the connection? It's not just about feeding bread to people. He comes out and he says, I'm the light of the world. And he turns right around and he heals the man born blind. He cures his darkness. You follow? Jesus does a resurrection-style miracle where he brings to life and commands to rise a man whose legs have been dead for 38 years to gain this audience with that group and this group to talk to us about resurrection. And what were the points of his sermon? Because they did not go over well at all in Jesus' day. And I'm not so sure that they're all that exciting today either. Right about chapter 5, that's when we start reading, okay, now they're conspiring to kill him. Look, I know that I have probably preached some duds over the course of the last 10 years. But to my knowledge, nobody's tried to kill me yet. Okay? So if there's a little conspiracy going on that I need to know about, I just want you to know there are other options. But not for these guys with Christ. They want to kill him. So what were his points? Well, he came to them and us and he said, look, I'm going to talk to you about something that you don't think a lot about. Doesn't even seem to be relevant for you. It's not even like on your radar screen. And it's judgment. He said, you know what? Here's the thing. A day of judgment's coming. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, from the perspective of the religious leaders of Jesus, the problem is they just assumed the judgment was for everybody else. 
And, and the reason for that is because these guys had devoted their lives to scrupulously obeying the law of God as it's contained in the writings of Moses. No one obeyed the law of God better than these guys, not in their day and maybe not in any other day either. So they're looking at judgment, and they're looking at their lives, and they're looking at their devotion to the law of God and the way that they're living, and they just kind of assume that, look, if judgment's coming, and it is, great, but they're not coming for us. He's coming for somebody else. Judgment is something you other people ought to worry about. It's not something we need to worry about, and we think the same thing. And for the same reason, now not because we scrupulously obey the law of God as it's written for us and contained and given to us in the law of Moses, but because we kind of look around and we do the same thing they did. They compare themselves with themselves, right? And then they proclaim themselves to be good, therefore, no problem with God. Jesus is saying something very different. He's coming with a very different standard, with an entirely different comparison. He's saying, look, here's the deal, and this is why this is relevant. Believe it or not, unless you are as holy as God, unless you are as perfect as God, unless you are as righteous as God, unless you are as good as God himself, then you're not good according to God, and God decides By the way, a day of judgment's coming, Jesus says. I'm going to be the judge, and here's what's going to happen, which makes this miracle so cool. On that day, my voice will ring forth again, and again I will say, rise. But it's not just going to be the dead muscles and nerves and capacities in in a lame man that come to life, but all of the dead will come to life. And on that day... All of humanity will be raised either to a resurrection unto life or a resurrection unto judgment. And just in case you're wondering what the difference is, Jesus says to them and us, I'm the difference. The difference is not what you do or don't do in obedience to the law of God or any other law because the standard there is perfection. Oops. Jesus says the difference is me. I am God himself, made man, come into this planet to live a life that, well, is as holy as God. How could it not be? Perfect as God, righteous as God, good as God. It meets God's own standard for man, for he is the God-man. And But that's not all he does. It's not just life, but it's what else? Death, burial, and next week's Easter, resurrection in which Jesus Christ takes upon himself our sin, the judgment we deserve eternally, and as the infinite man suffers infinitely for it. It's the only one he can do these things. Washes it away with his blood and rises victorious over sin and death so that all who come and put their faith and trust in him on the day of judgment when the voice of Christ cries forth, rise and all of us obey, well, then that's going to be a good day. But these guys that Jesus is talking to, these religious leaders who have devoted their entire life to obedience to the law of God in Moses, I mean, they've got a lot invested there, and they're not buying it. And so if you're kind of wondering why they might want to kill Jesus, let me read to you his closing argument, because he comes at them. He says to these guys who keep the law of God better than anyone else and therefore assume judgment is for everyone else because they don't get the fact that the standard is perfect and only one person has done that, that's Christ. He says to them, closing argument, John 5, verse 45 and 46, he says, do not think that in the day of judgment, I will accuse you to the Father. I'm not going to have to, guys. Somebody else is going to do it. 
And ironically enough, it's going to be Moses. Moses, the one on whom you have set your hope. Moses, the one whose law you've devoted your life to following. Moses himself will stand up on the day of judgment, and he will not bear witness for you. He will bear witness against you. Well, why is that, Jesus? Well, look here. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me when I tell you. I'm the difference between eternal life and death. And why is that? Because Moses, he says, wrote of me. Now, just try to absorb that from their perspective for a second. I mean, what are you thinking if you're them? Because I'm thinking Moses wrote of you? Where? Seriously, like, help me with this one. Moses wrote of you. Okay, we got all the writings of Moses, Jesus. It's called the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. You know, let's show me the page. Where does he write of you? I mean, he wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before you ever made the scene. I've read the books. You know who's in there? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We got the Tower of Babel story and all that deal happening. We have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of Jacob's other sons as well. We have Moses and Miriam and Aaron and we have Joshua who takes over from Moses and we have all these stories about the Israelites and being delivered from slavery in Egypt and all of that stuff and wandering all over the place and getting the law at Mount Sinai. We got this story about Balaam and a talking donkey. We do. But there is no mention of a Jesus of Nazareth you again, wasn't born for, you know, I mean, like a long time after all of the books were written and published and done. So they're not about you, Jesus, or are they? Because he says they are, unambiguously, clearly, and directly. And I'm here to tell you they are all about Jesus. He's everywhere. He's all over it. But only for those of us who have trained our hearts to see him, to look for the pattern. And what is the pattern by which we are saved? It is life, it is death, it is burial, and because it's almost Easter, it's resurrection. So, since it's almost Easter, I thought that we'd look at an example of this out of the writings of Moses. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, then you can turn them to Exodus chapter 15, where we're going to look today at a story that is really, really odd. I mean, it's just almost bizarre. You know, you come along this story as you look in this Bible and you're reading through, if you just read it through, and it's short and it's strange, and you just think to yourself, what's that? Why is this even in here? This is a story that makes absolutely no sense apart from Life, death, burial, and resurrection. If the story points to Jesus, then it's brilliant. Otherwise, it's just odd. The rather odd and overlooked story that we're going to look at comes on the heels of one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Even if you don't know the Bible very well, I promise you, you know this story at least. It is the story of God's deliverance of his people through the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. God, who through Moses has brought his people out of 400 plus years of slavery in the land of Egypt by bringing destruction upon the Egyptians through plague upon plague upon plague upon plague until Pharaoh finally relents and says, listen, you, you guys need to just get out of here. And I don't mean tomorrow or the next day. I mean like 20 minutes 
minutes ago, you need to leave, okay? Just get out now. And they head on out of Egypt under the direction of Moses, but following the Lord who does something very interesting because he's not done bringing destruction on the Egyptians yet. He leads them out into the wilderness, and he just kind of leads them around not far from Egypt, sort of in circles. And he's doing it because he's using his people as bait. How does it make you feel? The Lord dispenses with us as he sees fit. And sometimes it's a little disconcerting as it's about to be with these guys. But it's always good. It's wonderful in the end. So God leads them around in the desert, making it look to Pharaoh like they don't know what they're doing or where they're going, and they're just all going to go in circles forever out there and trying to entice him to come out to seek his revenge for all the destruction that's happened in Egypt. In fact, God leads his people into what looks like a trap for his own people, but really is a trap for Pharaoh. He leads his people into this place where they're backed up against the Red Sea, and they have absolutely nowhere to go. Now, remember, this is a generation of people who have been enslaved in Egypt. They don't have any weapons. They're not taught as warriors. They don't have an army. They're defenseless, backed up against the Red Sea with nowhere to run, and that's more than Pharaoh can handle. I mean, his temptation level is... It's like, so he just gets his army and they charge the Israelites and it is an absolute certainty that this is going to be a massacre. And the Israelites see him coming and realize that it's an absolute certainty that this is going to be a massacre. And so they all turn to Moses, whose job I would never, ever want. And they start to complain to him one of many occasions. And they're like, what have you done to us? Did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? We're done. And what does Moses say? Because it's precious, I'm going to read it to you. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. It says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. Who works salvation? Like, do they have any part in this, guys? Zero. They're done. They're defenseless. They are altogether vulnerable. Moses says, relax. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is the worker of salvation, and He will work this salvation for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, bearing down on you, yeah, I know, right now, you shall never see again, and not because they're going to wipe you out, but because your God who fights for you is going to wipe them out, and it's going to be cool. And so he says, the Lord will fight for you, and then this is his favorite part of the speech, I'm sure. Like, he didn't call me up and tell me this, but I got to believe he enjoyed this part. He says, and you only have to be silent. He's like, just zip it and watch. You don't get to say that much. Moses raises his staff. The waters of the Red Sea part. The people of Israel pass through on dry ground. Now, just feel that. Think about how dramatic that is. That exceeds our imagination, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know that there's any way to completely get in their sandals, but get in them as best you possibly can for a second. Walking through the miraculously walled-up waters to safety on the other side of the Red Sea. And what happens with Pharaoh? Well, God allows him to pursue them into the water. You know, same path, dry ground. 
That is until the last Israelite makes it safely ashore the other side and the waters slam shut. And the Egyptians who had pursued them, the Israelites saw no more. And guess what happens? On the safe side of the Red Sea, a worship service breaks out. Can you imagine what it looked like? I want to ask you, did it look something like this? They sang the song of Moses. One song over and over again. Oh, good grief again. (laughs) Praise God, it's almost over. What do you mean we're going to sing it again? Is that what it looked like? It's pretty much what you had it imagined, isn't it? I think they went bananas, man. I think they freaked out. I think they jumped around and danced. I think they hugged one another and wept. I think they threw stuff up in the air. I mean, you know, why not? Why don't we? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because I'll tell you, through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from a far greater foe than Pharaoh and from a far greater death than any kind of physical death that they could have experienced on the side of that seashore or that we might ever experience. It is by far a greater deliverance. And we ought to be no less enthusiastic. So anyway, then we come to this rather odd and overlooked story. Unless it points to Christ, in which case it makes perfect sense. It says here, Exodus 15, verse 22, it says, then Moses, and please don't miss the next word, made And I point that out because it's a forceful word. He doesn't woo them. He doesn't entice them. He doesn't persuade them. Oh, come on, guys. Come on, come on. Pretty, pretty, please. He drives them. He drives them away from the safe side of the Red Sea where they have just had an expression of all kinds of enthusiastic life, which is important if you're looking for life, death, burial, and resurrection. He drives them away from that place of life. And where does he drive them? It says, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. Now, what is that? It's a place of scarcity. It's a place where there's not a lot of food. But far more significantly, even than that, it is a place where there is no water. And that's the focus. It says, and they went for how many days? Three days in the wilderness, and they found no life. You're like, that's not what it says. All right, I'll rephrase it. They went in the wilderness for three days, and they found nothing but death. Is that better? Tom, why don't you just read it? And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And it's true that that's what it says, that they found no water. But what you need to understand is that to be without water in the desert is to be dead. It is to be under the emblem, the sentence of death. You are walking around certain of death absent water. And if you're going to see life, death, burial, and resurrection in these stories, you've got to begin to think in these categories, and these are the very kind of categories that the New Testament invites us to think about. You think about most famously in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. The father has two sons. The young, rebellious son comes to dad, says, dad, there's a party in the far country. My heart already lives there. 
And the rest of my body would like to go, but I can't afford it. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pretend that you, though you are in good health today, were to die right now. So now I can get my inheritance from you, which that's what I want you to give me, so that the rest of me can follow my heart, which is living in the far country, having a party already. And dad, you know, the story goes for it. Brokenhearted. And off the boy goes. And the party rages in the far country until, of course, he runs out of money. And, and when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. Put those guys in quotes. And when he runs out of money and friends, he finds himself, this young Jewish man, working for a Gentile pig farmer. And culturally speaking, that's really saying something. Feeding pigs and longing, we read, to eat what the pigs ate. Yummy. Until what happens? It says that he wakes up. He, he comes to himself. There's an awakening that occurs with this young man. Now, what is an awakening? What, it almost sounds like resurrection. It's kind of like rise. <laughs> but in any event... And he realizes, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to live here in the far country. I don't have to live like this anymore. And I know that I've spent all of my resources in my life and I've wasted so much here, but I don't have to continue to waste away here. I have a father and, and I can go back to him and, and I can repent and I can come sorrowfully and I can really, I mean, I can genuinely at this point say, dad, I've blown it. And if you would just maybe consider, I don't know, possibly maybe consider just sticking me in the servants' quarters. Anything would be good at this point. Anything would be better than this. The life that he went looking for in the far country, he wakes up and realizes can only be found in the home of his father. So he comes back. And we see the dad. And what is the dad doing? He's looking longingly down the road, waiting for his son to come back. And he sees his son. And what does the dad do? He runs down the street and beats the snot out of him in front of all the neighbors. No, he embraces him. And he weeps over him. And he takes the finest of robes and he covers over all of his filth with it. And he places the ring of sonship upon his finger and he invites him into the home. Not the servants' quarters, no, the home. He's a son. And he calls up his staff and says, we are going to have a party tonight, guys. So you get the band, you get the caterer, you call all the neighbors, you do this, you do that, you gather up the family, everybody, oh, the fattened calf, the one we've been saving this is the night. And the older brother comes in from the field and he hears the party and he's none too happy about this. Can't believe it. How can you do this, dad? What does dad say? He says, this son of mine, your brother who was off in the far country living it up was what? Dead. You're like, he wasn't dead. He was walking around. (laughs) He wasn't dead. He was on the party circuit, man. He wasn't dead. He was living it up. To live in rebellion against the Father, to turn your back on the Father, to take all that the Father gives to you and to spend it all on yourself is, in the language of the New Testament, to be dead. The boy was dead, but then he woke up, didn't he? And in returning and in repentance, there is a resurrection. There is life. When you think in these categories, you suddenly begin to see the pattern. 
And so when Moses says that the Israelites went three days in the wilderness and they found no water, what is he saying? He's saying, look, even though they're walking around out there physically, we know they're physically alive. Granted, they're as good as dead. So there's life by the Red Sea, and then for three days, there's death. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea where there's all kinds of life, and they went out into the wilderness where there's all kinds of death. And they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water, and so they wander around for three days under the emblem, under the sure sentence of death, except then we read, when they came to Merah, they could not drink the water. Oh, oh, wait a minute, don't run too fast by that. You know what that means? That means that these people who have been walking around for three days in the wilderness, sweating away in the heat of the Middle East, suffering with despair growing and growing with every passing moment, despairing over their children, despairing over their family, despairing over their nation, knowing that they're done without water, have found water. So now you got to imagine that. See, as I imagine that, I'm seeing the ripple of this supposed deliverance, you know, the news of, hey, we found water beginning to make its way through what could have been two million Israelites. And good news travels fast, man. And I'm kind of picturing all of these people who are like, you know, look, there's two million of us. We know that there's water. We don't know how much water there is. So you snooze, you lose, rifling through all of their stuff and pulling out every mug, every Tupperware container, every bowl, every dish, every canteen, everything that could possibly contain water because I don't know when we're going to find water again and putting it all in a big bag and running to beat the crowd, right, into the water, knocking each other over. It'd be like roller hockey, man. It's unbelievable fighting one another, desperate, running into the water, burying themselves in it, and then taking the biggest mug they could find and just driving that dude down into the water and pulling it back and taking a big drink, only to then have to spit it all back out. Imagine their despair then. Moses says, when they came to Merah and got all jazzed and excited and ran into the water and buried themselves in it, pulled out their big mug and took a big old drink, what they discovered is that they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. And therefore, it was named Merah, which means bitterness, not very original. But descriptive. And not only did it taste bitter, but it made the people bitter. Bitter waters make for bitter people. And we know that because it then says, and the people grumbled against Moses, who was wanting to go zip it, but it's kind of stuck. And there too, I think we can sympathize. I mean, they spend three days walking around in the desert under the sentence of death. I mean, it's certain that they're going to die. They come to water. They think they found it. They run into it, and it's bad. They can't drink it. And all hope dies. I think we can relate to that, not wandering around in the desert and coming to Mara. But I think that there is a sense in which this life is a wilderness. I really do. It's a place of scarcity. Every person here, young and old, is dealing with a scarcity of time. Have you noticed that yet? And not just, you know, like I never have enough time to get everything done that I need to get, that, that too. But I, I'm talking about like life and it's moving real fast. 
I'm like a middle-aged guy now. I'm admitting that out loud. It's part of my recovery. (laughs) And I've noticed life is moving really fast, and it just keeps getting faster. And what I'm recognizing is that life is actually really short, and all of us are dealing with a scarcity of time. And hey, here's the other part that I've been around just long enough to figure out. None of us know how long that time is. Scarcity. Now, that leaves you longing for something, doesn't it? There is a scarcity of intimacy and relationship in this life that leaves us longing and thirsting for something better. And why? Because we're all selfish and sinful. All of us. Sorry, but it's true. That makes relationship tough. Bitter. Relationships die for that reason. And other reasons. Disease, death. It's all kinds of D words, depressing, disillusionment. But that happens. There's a scarcity of resources in this life. No matter how many resources you're able to accumulate, there's always just like a little bit more you wished you had. Okay. See, as good as this life can be, and this life can be absolutely wonderful, and there are seasons and stretches of life that I've enjoyed that are tremendous and glorious, and I'm so thankful. It almost feels like a little taste of heaven at times. I'm actually a very positive person. Just want you to know that, throwing that out there in case you're new. But, but as wonderful as it can be, there is a barrenness to this world that creates within us a thirst for something better, for something grander. And unfortunately, it's a thirst that all of us, all of us are only all too quick to take up our mugs and canteens and Tupperware containers and bowls and dishes and whatever else we can maybe put some water in and rush down into the bitter waters of this world to try to satisfy. And so we want to be loved. We want to be appreciated. We want to be respected. We want to be valued. We want to be noticed for crying out loud. And so many of us take up our biggest mug and canteen and we rush headlong into the waters of marriage and bury ourselves within them, even though sometimes we're rushing into marriage and all of our family and friends are going, no, you know, we got to run through them to get there. God's word's going, hey, um, not a good idea, but here's the problem. We're thirsty. And so we're jumping at the first thing that looks like, I don't know, maybe there's a shot this could satisfy my thirst. And what does it become? Because it's not a surprise bitter. And it makes you bitter. Sometimes we run into those waters and everybody's going, yes, good idea. And it is a good idea. And it is a good marriage. And it is a wonderful blessing. And it is an incredible thing. And yet, if you're trying to draw out of the person that you're married to the kind of life that only Christ can bring, it's going to be bitter. And it'll make you better. Maybe it's money and success. I'm not against money and success. I want to officially cast my vote in favor of it. <laughs> Seriously. I'm not against it. I'm Really. But if you're driving your mug down into it thinking that it will be life to you, okay, well, then it's going to be bitter. And it will make you better. Reputation, popularity, pleasure, wonderful things in and of themselves but they're not life. And so Moses says that when the people of Israel came to Merah, rushed down into its waters, buried themselves within it, drove down their biggest mug, tried to take a swig, they couldn't drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah, which means bitterness, and it made them bitter. And so the people grumbled against Moses. 
But notice their question because it's a good one. The question is, what shall we drink? That's what we all want to know, isn't it? And notice the answer. It says that Moses cried out to the Lord and said, what shall we drink? And what does it say? It says, and the Lord showed him a log. No, he did not. He most emphatically didn't. But that's what it says in the ESV. For all of the many wonderful ways that the ESV translates the original language into English, this is definitely not one of them. What it says, actually, is that Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord pointed out to Moses a tree. It's a tree. And the word pointed out or showed is kind of interesting because it comes from the same root that we get the root word Torah, which parenthetically also happened to be the writings of Moses, but it means instruction. So then what is the instruction of the Lord? It seems pretty simple, doesn't it? The instruction is that only a tree has the power, has the capacity, has the ability to take that which is bitter and to make it sweet, to take that which is unacceptable and to make it acceptable, to take that which is foul and putrid in truth and to make it pure and undefiled in truth, to take that which is dead and to make it alive. Okay, one of my other irritations when it comes to translations is that we get to the New Testament and we start reading about the cross and the cross and the cross and the cross, and that's a wonderful word, by the way, and most of the time, that's the right word, but there are numerous times where that's the wrong word, where the real word is tree. Jesus Christ hung on a tree so that all who come to Him in faith might be transformed The bitter becomes sweet. The unacceptable becomes acceptable. The foul and putrid, sorry, but I described myself there too. Pure and undefiled. Dead and living in a far country. Awake and alive and finding life in the home of the Father. It's beautiful, really. And so Moses says that the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, said, What shall we drink? And the Lord pointed out a tree, and Moses cut it down. That's the idea, which is an emblem of suffering. And he threw it into the water, which is an emblem of total sacrifice. And the water became sweet. And the people who had been walking around in the desert under the emblem of death for three days were revived. They were restored to life. They were raised, if you will, to life by the bitter waters that were made sweet through the tree of the cross, if you will, or at least through the tree that clearly pointed to the cross. That's the only way you make sense of this story. Otherwise, it's a head-scratcher. But when you see it that way, it's pretty glorious. So Jesus, walking along, heals this guy, legs dead, 38 years, raises him, if you will, with the command of rise, and then earns the right to preach the sermon to the religious leaders and through this book to us, in which he says, judgment day coming, I'm going to be the judge. On that day, the dead will rise like this man. And it'll be resurrection to life or judgment. And I'm the difference. The difference is not in you being a good person as you define it. 
The difference is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the only good person who has ever lived and who lived and suffered and died on a tree so that all who come to faith in him might be made sweet, acceptable, pure, undefiled, and alive in him. That's what the story's about. That's what the writings of Moses proclaim. And that was Jesus' closing argument. He said, hey guys, if you don't believe me, check with Moses. Let's pray.